0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the NDP sells out to the Liberals for nothing in return. Should air passengers get refunds and carbon taxes? Do they work?
1: The Andrew Lawton
0: Show starts right now. Well, crisis averted for now. Canadians not heading back to the polls as the Liberals succeed in a confidence motion of sorts. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show. It is Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. And yes, the Liberals have decided just to make everything a confidence motion now. So if, if, and it's a great strategy really, because it means that if the Liberals think they're going to lose a vote, they just say it's a confidence motion. And then all of a sudden the backbone NDP will have to go and side with the liberals because the NDP at all costs wants to avoid another election. That seems to be how we can kind of analyze and parse what happened this past week. The Conservatives were trying to create an anti-corruption committee, a a committee that would consolidate the efforts that are underway with uh, health and ethics and finance and make one singular committee that would actually take aim at Justin Trudeau's spending and take aim at the government's track record on things and also the numerous ethical breaches that have happened under Justin Trudeau's watch. And the rationale for this, and it was political posturing, of course, but the rationale for this is that it takes it off the plate of all of these other committees that have important work to do and creates a new committee that can be just focused on exploring Justin Trudeau's ethical lapses. What a great idea. I think it's actually fantastic. And Justin Trudeau does not clearly which is why the liberals not only fought it, but used the only tool they could think of to make sure the committee would never get off the ground because they don't want anyone poking around. The liberals don't want anyone answering the questions that this committee would be asking. So the liberals say it's now a confidence motion. They can just kind of say that, It doesn't need to be true, but it also means then that the NDP is forced to just go along with it. Because you may remember the New Democrats have already kind of decided they're going to get in bed with the Liberals. They backed the throne speech. There was that one interview, and I'm going to keep referencing it over and over again, in which Jagmeet Singh said he wasn't ruling out potentially propping up the Liberals for the next three years. And the Liberals have now learned that this trick works. The Liberals have now learned that they can just do this. If they think they're going to lose a vote, just say it's a confidence vote, and all of a sudden, boom, the NDP will be on their side. There's a round two coming up. This week, the debate is happening. I don't think the vote's until Monday of next week, but another opposition day motion from the Conservatives that would basically do something very similar, but specifically on the health file. So a health committee that, again, the Liberals are going to say is a confidence motion, thus will force the NDP to support it now this particular motion is interesting and this is going to be one to watch because the NDP had actually backed this motion in committee when uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner introduced it on the health committee a little while ago and at the time the liberals have said oh this is just such a massive motion we need uh, time to go through it and, and give us a give us a few days give us a little while but the NDP supported it The NDP supported it, and this is a a very important part of this, and if the NDP opposes it in the House of Commons, again, supporting in committee doesn't mean you have to support it in the House. If they supported it in committee and oppose it in the House of Commons, it will prove that they have no consistency whatsoever, that they have no grounding in what they actually believe, that they are simply just trying to prop the Liberals up. And there are myriad theories for why this is the case. The The prevailing one, certainly in my circles, is that the NDP simply doesn't have the money to run an election. They had a poor showing in the last election. They kind of thought they won, like Jagmeet Singh was thrilled about his performance, even though the NDP became the, the fourth party. But the NDP just doesn't have the money to run a full-fledged national election. Now, the irony is that it's never going to be cheaper than it is now to run an election because, you you know that it's not going to involve as much travel, which is one of the most prohibitive costs of national campaigns. It's going to be a very virtual, very Zoom-oriented. Uh, it's going to be a, a pretty bare-bones campaign, and probably a, a short campaign if we were to have an election right now. But uh, the irony is that people are so used to the old uh, way of doing things, they don't realize that, hey, that doesn't need to be a, a prohibitive factor right now. But this, this confidence vote uh, that could be coming up next week is an interesting one because the Liberals were saying that, oh, there's too much information that would be required because the bill or the, the committee would uh, basically have the government uh, turn over memos, emails, documents, notes, or other records from the Prime Minister's office, the Privy Council office, various ministers' offices and departments, and the Public Health Agency of Canada related to pandemic plans, the WHO, per- purchase of personal protective equipment and and so on and it's basically a supercharged access to information act that's the best way or access to information request that's the best way of, of kind of looking at what this is and the government's saying oh we don't have time to do that because we're focusing on the pandemic so they're again going to say that this committee would just be too disruptive to the work of the government ergo it would be a confidence motion that's the most likely path forward So here's the thing, though. The NDP couldn't even own the decision it made yesterday. I don't know if you saw this. Jagmeet Singh did a press conference uh, before the vote, and he wouldn't even give a straight answer on what his party would do. He had said that he was going to vote against an election, but wouldn't really say what he was going to vote for were they going to abstain or stick around and he gave this really bizarre line when asked what that means he said you'll find out the answer to that very soon here's the clip yeah, so earlier you were asked if, if your caucus is going to abstain or vote against the conservative motion we're kind of vague on that if you simply abstain there's still a chance the government could fall given the numbers in the house can you offer more clarity now are you going to vote against the conservative motion or is your party going to abstain
1: Uh, You'll find out the answer to that very soon,
0: just in a couple hours. But I can tell you again that uh, we are not looking for, we are not going to give the Prime Minister an excuse to go to an election. He's looking for an election. We're not going to give that to him. So it's almost like he doesn't even know, like he's trying to give himself a little wiggle room so that if he changes his mind or if his caucus revolts, he's got time. And here's the thing, and I say this to the Conservatives as well as to the NDP. If you think the Liberal government right now, the Justin Trudeau government is so terrible, if you think it's uh, running things illegally, it's in violation of ethics laws, it's not accountable, it's doing things wrong. It's endangering Canadian lives and livelihoods. Why wouldn't you want an election? Because I, I do feel that the conservatives are in many cases trying to play both sides of this. They're trying to say, this guy's terrible. He's got to go. We're going to vote against him and oppose him at every step. But then they're also, on the other hand, saying, oh, we're not We're not talking about an election. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's only Justin Trudeau that's talking about an election. We don't want that. Whereas I'm like, just own it. And I get that they don't want to look like they are just wanting to send people to the polls in a pandemic, but the pandemic excuse for not wanting an election is over now. It's been long enough. We will be coming up in uh, January or I guess March if we want to go with when Canadians started getting locked down. We'll be coming up in March on a full year that we've been in this world. Already it is more than a year after last year's election when Canadians are looking at the fact that there's an election in BC, there's an election in Saskatchewan, there's an election in New Brunswick and I realize these aren't the largest provinces in Canada but when three of Canada's provinces can have elections without issue, we cannot use the pandemic as an excuse to not go to the polls especially when they talk about this going on indefinitely. And oh, as we know, the vaccine's going to be, you know, flatten the curve, two weeks to flatten the curve, wait until we have a vaccine. Uh, As I said on Twitter the other day, next thing you know, it'll be, uh, we're just going to, you know, hold out until the Leafs win the Stanley Cup. So we're in this whole thing for the long haul. So we can't use this as an excuse to not have elections, to suspend democracy, which is already something that politicians and governments were tempted enough to do in the early days of this pandemic. So, If you don't want to run a campaign and you don't want an election, that's fine. Don't use the COVID-19 excuse because it just simply isn't accurate. There's no reason that if we were destined for an election, we couldn't have one and make it work. It would look different. Campaigns would look different, but we could go to the polls and do it safely. So liberals are being smart right now when they try to make everything about an election, because again, it brings the NDP right along and the conservatives aren't as clear as they need to be. I would love to have conservative leader Aaron O'Toole come out and say, yeah, these guys have been uh, screwing the pooch. I can use that expression. I don't know. Okay, I'll use a different one. These guys have been screwing things up for so long and uh, we need to have change. I'm a conservative leader. I'm ready to go. I didn't want an election right now, but an opportunity is coming up. And you know what? Canadians should decide. Because the fear is that Canadians will decide to send Justin Trudeau back to Ottawa. That's the fear. Uh, good morning, Mr. O'Toole. We know that the Liberals have, of course, uh, been eager this week to make a confidence motion out of something that wasn't intended as such. Uh, my question to you is, why not own the fact that an election might be in the best interest of Canadians, given the, the charges that the Conservatives have been putting against Trudeau on matters of, of ethics and spending and all of these things? Why not welcome that opportunity? We're doing our job, Andrew, as an opposition to ask questions to hold the government to account for its ethical scandals and to propose a smarter, faster, and better solutions, We've done that with rapid tests. The Prime Minister said testing was important in March and then did nothing. When the Conservatives began asking questions, holding them to account, we had a response. How would an election in the second wave of a pandemic improve our response? How would that help the well-being of Canadians? Mr. Trudeau is willing to put his own political fortunes a continued cover-up ahead of the health of Canadians. The fear is that when Canadians are confronted with that choice, Canadians won't actually choose to throw out uh, the Liberals, but will actually choose to give the Liberals another mandate and potentially even a majority. And there does seem to be a galvanizing effect in a time of crisis where people go with the status quo, despite the questions that have been raised and very legitimate questions throughout the course of Justin Trudeau's leadership, even in, and I'd say especially in the last year. And then you have this ultimate question with the NDP. The NDP knows it's not going to win. The NDP knows that it's not going to become the government. So the NDP wants the most powerful situation possible for itself. And I go back to this article that came out, I think it was in December, in which Jagmeet Singh said he would rather press the Liberals than work with the Tories. This was in an interview with the Canadian press. He said, when it comes to the values that I have and have been pushing for, I don't see an alignment with the values the Conservatives have pushed forward. And ultimately, he had said the goal would be to uh, push the liberals to do better rather than working with the conservatives. And and there's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a far left party. Obviously, they're going to go with the other left wing party than the party that is uh, on the right. But in saying this, it reveals that if the choice is between a liberal government or a conservative government, the NDP will always, always, always want the liberal government. So they're not going to go down this road unless they think that they will improve their standing, perhaps come out a la Jack Layton circa 2011, but that's not going to happen. I think the NDP had its shot and blew it. And frankly, I don't think Jagmeet Singh is the leader that could recreate the Jack Layton coalition of the NDP. So when we see the NDP just decide to flounder and not be grounded in anything and just prop up the liberals, I mean, on one hand, I say, yeah, it's ridiculous and it's feckless. But on the other hand, I say, can you blame them? Because they don't really have any other options at this point. I mean, when I say floundering, just look at this story in the National Post. I think it was this morning or or yesterday evening. NDP needs more conscientious approach to avoid becoming permanent liberal prop-up, experts say. And I I don't quite disagree with this. The uh, quote that they're actually leaning on, the quote from which they're extracting that is from Kathy Brock, who's a Queen's University professor. And she says, the NDP is really going to have to be much more conscientious in Parliament going forward. And that means putting motions on the table to investigate things the government is doing and spending, putting forward measures that the government might have to vote down. But the whole point is that the NDP is not going to do that. I mean, if, if anything the NDP does, suppose the NDP wants to say, you know what? Yeah, we're going to take aim at this spending or that spending. All the Liberals have to do is say, ah, ah, ah it's going to be a confidence motion. Like, don't be surprised if by the end of this parliamentary session, we've had like a confidence motion a week because the Liberals have just discovered that that's their meal ticket to not having any opposition, to actually not being opposed. And this is where I go back to the Conservatives needing to actually stand up and and fight more forcefully for an election here, because they're going to say, oh, no, 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 we don't need an election. We can oppose through Parliament. But if the government is effectively neutralizing, or let's be frank, neutering the opposition by making it so that one of the opposition parties has been bought then there's not really an opposition mandate that exists in the House of Commons. Opposition is supposed to be strongest in a minority. But what Justin Trudeau has managed to do is dupe the NDP into a coalition government without actually being part of the coalition. Like, remember when there was the the big, the infamous, uh, you know, awkward handshake, the coalition between Jack Layton and Gilles Duceppe and uh, Stéphane Dion, you know, the thing about that coalition plan in 2008 was that there would at least be a formalized coalition, like, yeah, we are all sitting down at this table together. And as a Canadian, I didn't like it. But politically, that was at least an honest assessment of what they were trying to do. In this particular case, uh, Jagmeet Singh has no power, is getting no concessions. He's not managing to negotiate anything out of the Liberals that the Liberals weren't already doing. But the Liberals are getting the NDP support. So it is a coalition government without the coalition part, which I got to hand it to Justin Trudeau. I know people get mad when I give credit where it's due, but to have this much power without actually offering anything for it is a political accomplishment in and of itself. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I try to keep an eye out for uh, different stories that come up that are a little bit odd, off the beaten path things, and this sometimes brings me to really weird ones that I I wish I hadn't seen. But my mindset is, uh, if I had to see it, then you have to suffer through it as well. Uh, This comes from the River Valley News in the United States, a a Fox local station in Oklahoma. And that will become uh, less surprising to you in a moment. Two Lafleur County men, there they are there, were arrested on numerous charges, including desecration of a human member and outraging public decency with gross injury, according to Lafleur County Sheriff Rodney Derryberry, which uh, there's just a lot that's weird about the story. And, and Sheriff Rodney Derryberry is uh, one of them. Uh, the two men were charged with a number of things. A uh, desecration of a human member is the one I want to focus in on right now. But here's the thing. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, Sheriff Derryberry says someone was dropped off on October 14th at McAllister Hospital who had had a crude surgical procedure done, evidently not done by professionals. Uh, when they investigated it, uh, they had been able to confirm that, quote, a man's penis was cut off. But here's the kicker. The victim was a willing participant in the dismemberment. Now they're still being charged, uh, but the lesson in this is that even if you are in Oklahoma and you want like a uh, very crude uh, and a discount uh, castration procedure, you're not allowed to get it from uh, these uh, smiling chaps who look way too happy about being arrested for this. But hey, if the guy was a willing participant, uh, well, I don't know why they're charging. But it, but it really reinforces that idea: of desecration of a human member. I'll see myself out. Uh, What else do we have going on here? Uh, This one is a lot more wholesome. A high schooler has decided to take his creative Halloween costume for a spin around the neighborhood. This clip is from CBC's The National. I know this is my Halloween costume. Well, we started building it about three months ago. With all the pandemic, we couldn't, there were no parades left. So we came to Halloween costumes. The Sherman tank is one of my favorites. So the plan was to get a, a little electric engine, broken wheelchair, broken mobility scooter, and build yep. something that we could be—he so could drive in the parade. We spent quite a lot yep. of time collecting cardboard. Found a, a Sherman tank that uh, Canadians served in during World War II. This is how it would look, uh, except scaled down and, uh,
1: you know, James-sized.
0: I have this drawstring bag for holding candies to give to people. Everybody, everybody loves it. That is absolutely fantastic. So I've never been an artsy person in any way whatsoever. Well, no, sorry, I am on like non-visual arts thing. I can play piano very well. I can hum a tune. I once did a duet with Tal Bachman and uh, Michelle Bachman. It was a duet because I was singing with Michelle Bachman and Tal was accompanying. So I'm I'm not like not artsy. I just can't draw or sketch or mold or sculpt or anything like that. But uh, this is, I mean, tremendous. And the Sherman Tank, again, very uh, significant historical piece in Canada a lot of work went into it the, the engineering strength and it's a really good news story in Halloween especially when governments are telling people not to uh, do Halloween but then you look <laughs> at the replies and uh, granted it's a small sample size here but the first one this is kind of disturbing CBC and someone else are we really celebrating war and mobiles of violence with everything that's happening in Nova Scotia someone else says white people and then someone else says state-run media to be stopped now I, I don't disagree with the sentiment but I, I don't think that has to do with the uh, tank Halloween car co- I don't even know if you can call it a costume necessarily but but well done I would absolutely love to see that rolling down my street and you're never going to be as socially distanced as you are. If you are uh, hanging out in a tank during Halloween, uh, let's talk a little bit about the airline industry because I, I spoke last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, about being in an Air Canada focus group. I used to, in a, a distant world, uh, be a, a frequent flyer because of all of the you know things that are we're, n- we're now no longer allowed to do. But one of the big battles, and I'd like to focus on this in a bit more detail, uh, and probably get uh, Gabor Lukash on the show, who's been a great advocate for air passengers' rights, but West. WestJet has caved in the refund versus credit battle that airlines have been, for the most part, trying to stay back from. Right now, if you have had a canceled trip, even if the airline cancels it, they're not going to give you a refund with Air Canada or up until now WestJet. More on that in a moment. What they're going to do is give you a credit that you can then use at any point. And I don't even think they expire now because there's just so much that is in limbo and, and so much uncertainty. But what ended up happening was the airlines were saying, no, 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 we will only under the passenger rights laws have to give a refund if we cancel for something out of our control. They're saying that the pandemic is not in their control, ergo, uh, they shouldn't have to give refunds. And, and there, there is an economic argument here in that airlines right now are absolutely in terrible shape. Uh, the stock prices are a shadow of what they once were. And there's not really an end in sight. The CEO of United Airlines in the US had said that he doesn't think the flying demand will return until 2024. And there is, because of this, the discussion about whether there should be or will be a bailout of sorts. And I think there's a legitimate argument to be made that, look, airlines should not get a cent of taxpayer money when Canadians have millions and, in some cases, over a billion dollars wrapped up in these airlines in credits. But now WestJet has caved. They're going to provide refunds for flights canceled during the pandemic. Uh, They said they're contacting all eligible flyers with WestJet and Swoop, beginning with those whose flights were canceled in March 2020 at the onset of the pandemic, to offer refunds. The process is going to take six to nine months, and they're asking customers, uh, don't call us, we will call you. Uh, They're saying that they've heard loud and clear that people want uh, the safest travel environment and refunds. And up until this point, they haven't been able to afford it. But now they're saying that they think they can, they can make it happen. Uh, $1.2 billion. So this is great. So now Air Canada and WestJet are fighting about this. Air Canada says, misleading statement. WestJet is just now catching up to our policy to refund refundable fares. We have already refunded over $1.2 billion in refundable fares to date. Now, yes, Air Canada will refund you if you bought the refundable fares. Most travelers do not. They travel on one of the cheaper options that's not refundable. But uh, Air Canada's throwing shade here. And even tagging WestJet, which gives WestJet the opportunity to respond as they did by saying, let's clear the air. We're offering refunds for guests if we cancel their flight. Even the lowest cost tickets will be refunded to original form of payment if WestJet caused the cancellation, uh, making Air Canada probably really unhappy that it was deciding to uh, wade into this fight because they said in a statement that they're only going to be, again, refunding uh, the refundable tickets, but uh, this is what they should be doing, and I'm going to give some free advice to the airline industry and I'm borrowing this from what uh, cruise industries have done or the cruise industry has done Uh, and I know this because I I work in uh, one particular context in putting together an annual cruise and what the cruise lines have done many of them is say listen we'll give you a refund if you want we canceled it that's on us but if you do not want a refund or if you are tempted by this other option we will give you a credit at 125 percent value. So, you get a 100% refund, or you get a 125% credit. So, we'll pay you to do whatever it is you want to do with us at another point. And and to be honest, that option, if airlines did it, would go a long way to offer goodwill because it would convince people to actually keep their money in the airline, which uh, saves the airlines from the revenue issue. And they spend a little bit more down the road because they have to give the person, maybe it's an upgrade or maybe it's they swap it out for a more expensive flight or whatever the case may be. But they give people the option. And when push comes to shove, you say, listen, we'll give you your money back or will give you more value in the future. A lot of people are going to take the future option, but they're not doing that, and this is why airlines uh, continue to get crapped on because they invite it by crapping on their customers. So uh, good on WestJet again. I mean, I I've, generally speaking have flown a lot with Air Canada, and I think they do a lot well. I don't join the I don't I don't join the Air Canada's evil bandwagon like a lot of people like to ride on, but uh, they, they are looking pretty bad in this now that WestJet has given in. We will be right back in a moment and talk about the thing that's making everything more expensive forever. the carbon tax. That's up next on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Let's talk about one of my biggest pet peeves, and I suspect one that I share with a great many of you tuning in to this show, the federal government's carbon tax, or as it likes to call it, I believe, the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, which is basically the tax on everything, the tax on your fuel, on your gas heating at home, the tax on anything you buy that's been produced in Canada, on anything that's been shipped to you. It is literally the tax on pretty much every stage of the supply chain and it's supposedly going to help save the world from the evil scourge that is a greenhouse gas but at the same time this is also not something that I am as optimistic in and I I know a lot of you aren't either. Forgetting about the environmental side of the discussion here let's focus on the economic aspect. A new report from the Fraser Institute says that this carbon tax that we have in Canada, and in fact, most of the carbon taxes put in by very similar wealthy nations around the world, don't actually economically meet the criteria necessary to say they are efficient and effective. The report is Carbon Pricing in High-Income OECD Countries. The author is Elmira Ali Akbari, who's the Associate Director of Natural Resource Studies at the Fraser Institute and the author of this report. Uh, Dr. Ali Akbari, thank you. You very much for coming on good to speak with you.
1: Thanks Andrew for having me.
0: So let's start off with what it was you really set out to find when you decided to bring together these countries around the world what were you looking for?
1: So um, it's widely acknowledged that carbon pricing is the most efficient way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and address the issue of climate change. However some key conditions must be met for carbon pricing to be efficient, or in other words, to be the least costly approach for reducing emissions. Uh, The first condition is something we call revenue neutrality, and that means that all the revenues from carbon pricing should be used to reduce other costly taxes uh, in the system, such as reducing personal or business income tax rates. The second condition, which is also related to the first one, is that Governments should avoid subsidizing substitutes for carbon-emitting activities such as subsidizing wind and uh, solar energy sources because subsidizing these substitutes will increase the cost of reducing emissions and will defeat the whole purpose of carbon pricing, which is allowing the market and prices – Uh, to find the right substitutes. And the third condition is that the introduction of carbon pricing should uh, trigger uh, the repeal of the existing and corresponding emissions-related regulations. We shouldn't be adding carbon pricing on top of existing regulations. So in our recent study, we examined um, existing carbon pricing policies in 31 high-income OECD countries Uh, to determine whether uh, these uh, existing systems meet the key conditions of a well-designed carbon pricing policies. And we found that uh, no country has implemented a well-designed carbon pricing policy. More specifically, no country is using all the revenues from uh, carbon pricing to reduce other taxes which help with, you know, improving economic growth. Uh, Our study found that um, 74% of the carbon tax uh, revenues collected in 14 countries on average are simply used as uh, general revenues for the government. Uh, Only 14% of the uh, carbon tax revenues, again on average, Uh, were returned to taxpayers. And this suggests that, um, you know, existing carbon taxes are mainly used as a tool for governments to raise revenue rather than a mechanism to reduce emissions uh, in the most uh, affordable uh, way possible. In addition, we found that no country that uh, introduced carbon pricing has eliminated the existing and corresponding Um, GHG related regulations, in fact, most countries have done the opposite and uh, they have introduced even new regulations following the introduction of uh, carbon pricing. Um, Emission caps, uh, clean fuel standards, renewable power mandates, these are just some examples of these regulations that uh, undermine the cost effectiveness of uh, carbon pricing policies. I want to
0: talk about some of the specifics you mentioned a moment ago about how the money is spent. But before then, just getting to really the fundamental thesis of this report, am I correct that you're not saying a carbon tax itself is a bad thing, but just there's a right way and a wrong way to do it? Or is it that so many of these mechanisms you think would be required for it to be better designed are just not happening in carbon tax policies that we see around the world?
1: Uh, That's a really great point. Uh, So You know, most economists, including me, believe that carbon pricing is the most efficient way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And, uh, but we believe that the way we are designing and implementing those policies are really important. Uh, While tackling climate change is a priority, we should really pay attention to the way that we are uh, designing and implementing these policies. If we have a well-designed carbon pricing policy, we can uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a uh, an efficient and productive way and this is basically what our report is about. So
0: let's talk about how it's spent because I, I know this was a, a big uh, part of the discussion in Canada about whether the money that the government brings in through the carbon tax had to be used for for specific uh, emission reduction programs or whether it could just go into general revenue. Why does that matter? I I mean, in in the sense of the effect a carbon tax would have on consumers, on industry, uh, it's the same. How does it matter from an efficiency standpoint, how the government spends the money?
1: so um the revenue neutrality condition explicitly says that the collected revenue from carbon tax should be used to reduce other costly taxes in a system and the reason is that and this is really important the reason is that um this is a bit technical but i try to put it simple when we introduce a carbon tax or any other form of tax we create an economic inefficiency which results in something economists call deadweight loss. Deadweight loss is a cost to society resulting from an inefficient allocation of resources within a market. So the idea is that when we are basically, when we are having a carbon tax, that creates some efficiency costs. So to mitigate that efficiency cost, we should be using revenues from carbon tax to reduce other costly taxes. And, um, you know, when the, for example, in Canada, the federal government is now using um, its carbon tax revenues to kind of um, it's using 90 percent of its carbon tax revenues to recycle it back to households through issuing Um, lump sum rebates. While issuing lump sum rebates, um, you know, generate some um, um, economic efficiency benefits, but the benefits would be larger, you know, if we uh, reduce other taxes. Many papers have shown that when uh, we use carbon tax revenues and recycle them back to the economy in a form of tax cuts, that would result in a greater economic efficiency compared to a case where uh, we just uh, issue lump sum rebates. So, uh, and the intuition is also simple, because uh, remember those taxes, such as income taxes, they discourage work, they discourage investment and savings. So when we reduce those taxes, we can help more. With improving uh, economic growth, and that's why you know it's really important that all the revenues that we are collecting from uh, carbon pricing should be used to reduce other taxes. And this is not something that the federal government is currently doing.
0: One thing I'm curious about, and, and in the list of countries against which you've compared Canada, the 14 uh, OECD countries that have implemented carbon taxes, there's a, a huge range of, of what that actual tax rate is. I, I think Japan was the lowest at $3 per a ton of, of CO2 emissions, all the way up to Sweden at, I think, 127 or so, and, and Canada on the lower end uh, at $15. And I mean, obviously, as a, a Canadian taxpayer, I, I just don't like tax in general, so uh, even if it's lower than other countries, I I would still say that there's a question about whether it's too high. But are all of these countries comparable? I I mean, does Canada with its uh, industry that's heavily resource-focused have a a place and have an ability to compare it with the uh, economies and and greenhouse gas emissions uh, plans in Sweden, Japan, and and so on, where they don't have that resource sector as strongly as we do?
1: So we cannot directly compare those taxes among countries due to some reason because there are differences in those programs. For instance, in terms of in some countries, some sectors get compensation or some sectors get exempted from paying carbon taxes. Or in some countries, we see that the taxes apply to all the uh, emissions basically generated in the country, whereas in some other countries, it's only a share of emission, a portion of emission, not the whole basically emissions generated. So because of those differences within countries, we cannot really directly compare those carbon taxes between uh, countries.
0: So I I guess the big question is, I I mean, are we talking about tweaks that could be made to Canada's carbon tax in order to bring it alignment with what you're saying? Or would it really have to go back to the drawing board and and start from scratch to qualify as being an effective and efficient uh, plan?
1: Yeah, I think uh, we can make some uh, tweaks or reforms, you know, to make it basically a well-designed carbon pricing policy. Uh, the, another main issue in Canada is that um, the federal carbon tax is accompanied by so many other regulatory measures. For example, we have a regulate and all those regulations have the same target or objective and that's actually the issue. For example, we have a regulation to phase out coal fire power plants by 2030. We have a regulation on uh, methane emissions in the oil and gas sector. We have an ethanol regulation to reduce Greenhouse gas emissions in the transportation sector. The federal government has also, you know, proposed this sweeping regulation called Fuel Clean Fuel S Standard to mm-hmm. decarbonize fuel use uh, in the country. So all these regulations that have the same objective, they have the same target. When we accompany those. Regulations with the federal carbon tax—all those regulations are going to increase the cost of reducing uh, reducing emissions without generating uh, any significant marginal benefit. So um, that's one of the main issues with um, federal government's carbon tax. The other issue is, uh, as I discussed, um, is that the way. The federal government is recycling its carbon tax revenues. is not ideal. This is not what economists have in mind the federal government should be using carbon tax revenues to reduce other costly taxes, uh, such as personal or business uh, income tax rates. Again, this is not happening in Canada. And we have also seen that the federal government uh, is now um, uh, using 30%, uh, 10% of its carbon tax uh, revenues um, to um, basically pursue some environmental goals because those uh, that 10% goes to small and medium-sized companies and some other um, organizations, such as uh, schools and hospitals, for their uh, energy efficiency programs, meaning that, you know, the government is kind of using that revenue to pursue some uh, environmental uh, goals. And, you know, this is not something that you know we should be doing again, um, the thought, like we should be having a well-designed uh, carbon pricing policy so that we can uh, d- deliver emission reductions in an efficient way.
0: The report from the Fraser Institute, Carbon Pricing in High-Income OECD Countries, and you can check that out online. We'll have a link in the description box. The author of the report, Dr. Elmira Aliakbari, Associate Director of Natural Resources for the Fraser Institute, joins me on the line now. Dr. Aliakbari, thank you very much for coming on today. Great to speak with you.
1: Um, Thanks for having me.
0: It's funny, I, I know I'm, I'm going to get a lot of nasty messages from a lot of people who are, are like me in the I don't want any carbon tax camp. And I, I think that's an entirely defensible and, and justifiable position. But I do think it's interesting that there are a lot of people in Canada, and I'd say there are probably a lot of people in the, the Liberal Party that are are true believers in the sense that, yes, they think environmental issues are you know, these crippling threats to humanity, but there are also people that want good effective policy and, and that's the thing and I'm kind of at this point where if there's going to be a carbon tax if we're going to go down this road let's at least make it revenue neutral and let's at least not just treat it as a general tax and this is one of the big things that was coming up and I was in the whole uh, week of, of trial for the Ontario carbon tax court case that would have been what April 2019 I think that was at Osgoode Hall and and it was amazing how the government was trying to pretend this isn't a tax, and, and that was one of their lead arguments. And I think, unfortunately, the court actually agreed with them that it's a regulatory charge, not a, a tax. But, but when Canadians are paying it, it doesn't matter what you call it, it's money out of a Canadian's pocket. And when this is just going into basically infrastructure, green uh, slush funds that aren't actually being put towards the stated purpose of it, that aren't having an effect, it's something that we need to push back again. So this, to bring it around to that interview, I mean, e- even if you're, you're like me and you're saying I, I'm team anti-carbon tax, that's fine. But I think this report is valuable because it's saying if you are going to go down this road, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And all of these governments that have consumed the Kool-Aid are very much going down the wrong way on that. So uh, do check out the report and let me know what you think. With that being said, we have to wrap things up for today. My thanks to all of you for tuning in and again to Dr. Elmira Aliakbari from the Fraser Institute. We'll talk to you next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more of it, we need your support. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and click donate to support the work that we're doing and stand up for independent media. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.